Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, I'm just going to keep asking this question throughout the morning. Is it over? Are we done right. with the attention between the U.S. and Iran? Joining us now is Iham Kamel, practice head f- focused on the Middle East, North Africa, uh, as well as others at Eurasia Group. Joining us now on the phone. Uh, can I get it, just get a sense? Is it over, Iham? Well, it's, uh, I think we're off the peak of the crisis. The Iranians conducted what is, I think, a largely symbolic attack on bases that host U.S. troops in Iraq. Those attacks were very calibrated. They were designed not to cause casualties or not to create conditions for Trump to overreact. Uh, the president is speaking at, in, a, in a few minutes, so we'll hear more from him, but I expect movement towards less, less tensions. So, I am. are you surprised that the Iranian response was, uh, I guess, as restrained as it was? Because I guess that what we had heard up until today was the general that was taken out was such a large figure and an important figure in Tehran. Are you surprised that the response wasn't maybe even more pronounced? Well, I think that everything that we've been hearing from the Iranians hinted as, at a much more robust military response. So to a certain extent, they did uh, exercise a level of, of restraint over here. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty sure that there are uh, regional powers that have tried to intervene to ease tensions, international powers as well, to really calm the Iranians down. Now, another factor I think that helped calm the situation is that the Iranians are thinking long term. They want the U.S. out of Iraq, and they're fine with that as a long-term victory, something that cements their power in the Middle East. So let's talk about that, because that was one of my main questions when I was reading all of this. Iran, uh, Iran wants the U.S. out of Iraq, right? I mean, it wants them to withdraw their troops. Does sort of pushing down the tensions accelerate that process since it appears that the Iraqis are more eager to get the U.S. troops out? Well, I think that the less military confrontation that you have in Iraq between the U.S. and and Iran, the easier it will be for President Trump to withdraw forces. He can't easily do it under fire, as in when he's been attacked in Iraq left and right, when there are tensions between Iran uh, moving towards a, a widespread confrontation. Absent that, any form of really going down away, moving away from tension, creates easier conditions for that. But again, I think that there are local dynamics here. Uh, the Iraqis themselves feel that U.S. presence in the country has become challenging and a little bit problematic. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll see more domestic pressure on the U.S., perhaps if not to withdraw, to severely rest- restrict U.S. operations in the country. Well, at the top of the hour, we will be hearing from President Trump. He'll be making comments uh, on the Iran situation. Amal, what do you? what will you be listening for in his comments? What do you think Iranian, uh, Iranians will be listening for? I think the Iranians are expecting big boards, the president to declare victory, 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 and that he's done what no other could could do. Uh, I think that's that's that will happen in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think the key issue for the Iranians is to see whether Mr. Trump will authorize some form of follow-up in terms of reaction. That's what they really care about. If there is no uh, U.S. response in, in reaction to the missile attacks from Iran, 
I think the Iranians would feel much more comfortable as and we're moving away from a sharper escalation. So that's what I think what the press, the press conference is about. The press conference for the president himself is not just about Iran. This is about positioning himself as a strong leader, someone that has been able to do uh, things that other leaders or other U.S. presidents were not able to do. So it's, it's also made for domestic consumption or for a, a domestic audience in the U.S. So let's talk about the price of oil. Uh, it is down today and having the biggest two-day downdraft uh, since December 2nd. And I'm wondering whether this is the beginning of more to come in the sense is as people realize there isn't going to necessarily be a disruption in supply, all of a sudden things start to look a little bit more uh, oversupplied with a demand that seems to be basically balanced at this point. Well, I think that is a, that's a very inter- interesting idea. Uh, perhaps some of that risk that uh, will, will will be taken off, I think, will be reflected in oil prices. So we'll see uh, some form of a dip, maybe a few dollars. Uh, but again, uh, it's not that Iran or U.S.-Iran tensions have become zero or that we're returning to a stable equilibrium. There are many problems still in the Middle East that could cause those disruptions. It's not like uh, we've, we've returned to stability. Uh, the, the demand and supply picture, I think, is a little bit complicated, but we do have a U.S.-China trade agreement that could also help maybe provide some boost to oil prices, maybe not to uh, maybe not lift them up to 70, but I think we're in a world where $65 it seems to be the bottom or, or could be the bottom in this environment. Uh, absent any real confrontation or real outages in the Middle East, you're not really talking about oil moving north of 70 on a, uh, or in a strong direction. Uh, the, really, we need to see data from U.S. shale, hard evidence that U.S. shale is decelerating, that uh, investment in U.S. shale is actually much lower, much more prudent, and therefore supply will be limited. Uh, so, uh, Ahem, get a sense of kind of the next steps for Iran. I guess from your perspective, would it in, is it in Iran's best interest right here to say, okay, this is over, essentially? Well, I don't think that the Iranians are going to be uh, uh, fully saying that it's over. They'll say that they are fighting uh, uh, really an effort or struggle to get the U.S. out, to make the region uh, region governed, uh, governed by states that are inherently part of it. And I think the key word here is get the, getting the U.S. to withdraw from different places. I don't think that uh, the U.S.-Iran relationship is going to be okay anytime soon. Uh, Mr. Trump has withdrawn from the JCPOA. He has uh, killed a senior Iranian commander. He had, he has sanctioned the country. So we still have a, a, a long-term issue around the U.S.-Iran relationship and whether you can get a pathway that is sustainable that gets us away from confrontation and towards de-escalation. Yeah. But certainly yeah. we, we were away from a peak of a crisis. Just real quick here, about 30 seconds, I'm wondering, President Trump is going to speak uh, in response to uh, the Iranian uh, retaliation. What do you expect to, him to say or what, do you want, what, do you, what are you looking for? I think he's going to say that the, that the Iranian response was weak and, and therefore uh, there, there, it's not necessary for the U.S. to move and do much more and that U.S. power remains robust and he is ready when the Iranians do something that crosses a line to respond.
Aham Kamal, thank you so much for joining us. Aham is a practice head, Middle East and North Africa for the Eurasia Group, some of the smartest folks out there when you're talking about geopolitics. He's based uh, in London, and Tom Keen was uh, recently, this early this week, at their offices at Eurasia Group, getting a great overview of all things geopolitical, whether it's uh, the Middle East uh, or China and Hong Kong. Uh, they do some great work, and we appreciate them coming on Bloomberg Radio. The question of the day, is it over? Are we done with the brief, very brief, if perhaps non-existent and recognizable uh, turmoil that we saw in markets due to Iran-U.S. relations uh, tensing up? Joining us now, Scott Wren, Senior Global Market Strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, overseeing nearly $2 trillion. Joining us from St. Louis, Missouri, is it over, Scott? Well, Lisa, Happy New Year, and probably, uh, while the market appears to think we're not going to see uh, uh, too much of an escalation, you know, we think at least in the in the near term, we're likely to see uh, uh, some more tit-for-tat, a little bit more escalation. But, you know, that's not really changing and has not changed really what our outlook is as we look out over uh, 2020. So, Scott, give us your outlook for 2020, given the incredible kind of market uh, you know, a response we saw in 2019. What do you do for an encore here? Well, I tell you, it's 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 tough, Paul. And and what we've been doing um, for it, during the second half of 2019, uh, we raised a little cash. We backed off of industrials. We got a little less cyclical, and that's pretty much our stance right now. Because for us, uh, stocks are uh, very close to fair value. We still like tech. Uh, we still like consumer discretionary. We still like financials. But you know, if we see a total return somewhere in the mid single digit area, I think that's about right. Um, for us, probably the, the the upside surprise. You know, you have to ask yourself. You know, how much chasing are we going to see here? Because there's a lot of underinvested, whether they're professionals or retail investors, a lot of people with cash on the sidelines. We've seen a little chasing here, and then I think also a factor that that could make our outlook too conservative too conservative is if we see uh, the international economy stabilize and do a little bit better than what we thought. So I think those are a couple of the factors that we're trying to keep a close eye on, trying to project. But for right now, we think stocks are pretty close to fair value. There was a conversation on Bloomberg Television this morning about this idea that seems to be pervasive in markets, which is, honestly, unless we get a massive shock, stocks are going to keep rallying, risk assets look good, and you don't want to miss out. The problem is, if we see a shock is the big caveat, and it seems like if we see a shock, everyone's going to try to escape out of the same narrow uh, exit. How concerned are you about the lack of hedging and sort of the, the crowdedness of some of these risk trades? Well, you know, a lot of times, you know, as you, as you approach a market high, and if you look at the performance, for instance, between the S&P equal weighted index and just the S&P, you know, the performance is starting to widen there a little bit. It's nowhere near what you usually see at the market top. So really, you know, I think there's a decent amount of liquidity in the market. But if you really see a meaningful shock, um, as is usually the case, you know, there's, there's a lack of liquidity on the way down. I mean, the bids just go away. Uh, 
um, and 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 there's not a lot of people stepping in to buy, and that's where you see these big gaps down. So I think uh, I'm not sure that's going to be any worse than it has been on meaningful big shocks in the past, and it's certainly something that you want to think about. And you know that's why you know we've talked to our our clients. You know we had leaned hard towards stocks, you know, for really the last eight years. And and for instance, you know if you're in a 60/40 stock bond type of portfolio, we want our clients to be pretty close to that right now because as I said, you know, there's a lot of risks out there. Stocks are not cheap. Um, and we just want to be a little more careful here than we had been in previous years. Scott, I want to get your thoughts on valuations in the equity market. We've seen, obviously, in 2019, this 29% move up in the S&P 500 with very little to no uh, earnings growth. Give us a sense of kind of where we are valuation-wise historically. Well, you know, we've got a 175 number out there. So right now you're looking at about 18.6 times uh, uh, this year's earnings. And if you look at, uh, you know, over the last 20 years or so, you know, the average forward price to earnings ratio would be, let's say, 16.3, something like that. So, you know, you're certainly trading at a premium to that. Now, you could make the argument uh, that, you know, we're in a lower interest rate environment, the Fed's easy, people are underinvested. And so it's common that you get this push up in valuations in the in the later stages of a cycle. So, you know, valuations are are above average. Um, we would argue that they're not meaningfully stretched. I mean, if you look back at the Fed model, and I haven't run these numbers lately, but if you looked at that correlation over a long period of time, it probably suggests the PE on the S&P should be, you know, 28 or some crazy number like that. So, right. you know, the, these correlations haven't held. It makes some sense that we're at a little bit of a premium, but we don't think there's too much upside in terms of valuations from here. We need to see some underlying earnings growth. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you uh, coming on. Scott Wren, Senior Global Ma Market Strategist for Wells Fargo uh, Investment Institute, joining us on the phone from St. Louis. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Justin Fox. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio with a fascinating column about a story that I'm very interested in, which is, has the U.S. passed peak auto? Are people still going to drive cars going forward? Justin takes a look at it in terms of, are teens still driving cars? So, Justin, thanks so much for joining us. What's going on? I know when I turned 17, that day I was at the DMV getting my license. I never looked back. Is that still happening? Um, less and less, although a lot of it among 16 and 17 year olds is basically because in lots of states you can barely drive even after you get your license. There are all of these restrictions. And so there's really been a collapse in the percentage of 16 year olds getting licensed. It's a little more than half what it was in the 80s back when we got our license. Yes. It was. Um, and you, you get to older ages and it and it's not as big a decline, but basically every age court in the cohort in the U.S. below 45 is less, people are less likely to have licenses than they were in the early 80s. How much is this due to people moving to cities and moving away from more uh, suburban and rural areas? I mean, since the 80s, I think most development and most population growth has been in suburbia, not in cities, even though there's been a modest return over the past um, 20 years or so. And, and I mean, it, it, this trend first got a lot of attention um, 
probably seven or eight years ago, a researcher named Michael Sivak, who was then at the University of Michigan, sort of pointed it out. The media picked up on it. And a lot, it was a pretty precipitous decline in like 2007, 2008, 2009. And a lot of that was gas was really expensive and the economy was awful. And there was, so there was a little bit of a bounce back in 2015 and 2016. But what's really interesting is that has now stopped. When you look at the percentage of teens getting licenses and everybody getting licenses, it's just stopped rising. What's the Uber impact? You know, when I was down uh, at Duke University recently, somebody was telling me, like when I was there, parking impossible to get. Now they're like, lots of parking spaces around. The kids aren't bringing their cars because they just Uber everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that is an element in a lot of places. It's like 16-year-olds aren't supposed to be able to take Uber, I don't think. <laughs> okay. um, but it happens all yeah, the I'm time. Yeah, sure they do because. all the time. Uh, and they can take it with their parents and all, but supposedly. Right. Yeah. No, 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 I mean, yeah. I mean alone. Yeah, but go Technically. On. But I, I mean, I'm sure that is part of it. There are alternatives like that. I'm sure smaller families are part of it. So there aren't five different kids to get around. If it's one or two, then a parent might be able to do it. And they spend more time with them. <laughs> and I mean, there was a big, like, public transportation um, sort of hit its all, you know, modern low in the U.S. in the in the 80s and then had another drop in the mid 90s when gas prices were super cheap and and the economy was booming but it rose a lot um through about 2014 but it's not rising lately either so it is kind of i mean one thing if you look at older um americans or just people with jobs telecommuting people more people are able to do jobs without driving there but I, I this, this really confused I, I gotta say I, I'm not I'm not totally getting any of these explanations because I know I grew up in New York City and yes I failed my driver's test more than once uh, it wasn't my fault it, <laughs> let's not talk about it but it was a stick shift and the guy hated me but it, it's okay I've forgiven you if you're listening but I will say uh, sort of um, I will say that it was a, a source of deep anxiety growing up like what happens if you're you can't leave a big city I mean how do you not have a license how do you travel so somewhere and rent a car. I'm sorry, that I just don't believe that simply uh, having an Uber once in a while changes that. I think, I mean, for most people it doesn't. It's still clear that most Americans get driver's licenses, most Americans have cars, but I think there's a larger minority that will not. And I just, and I, you know, I don't see car use collapsing, but it's pretty clear when you look at like per capita miles traveled, it stopped rising. Well, but this, the interesting point here is how autonomous driving will actually play into this. And I know that my 10-year-old sometimes asks me, you know, am I ever going to have to get a driver's license? Do I have to get on that? I'm like, no, 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 please, you're fine. Then I think about it. And, he, you know, is there going to be just this model of managing these cars that are kind of driving themselves around and maximizing their use instead of having people with a bunch of cars parked in their driving? Uh, I mean, yeah, someday. But I, I, I will say people have spent a huge amount of time and energy talking and thinking about that over the past few years and it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening for another decade or two at the earliest so uh, your son's still going to have to drive if if you want him to drive so i'll, I'll tell him i'll tell him lots of scary stories <laughs> when the guy comes in and says are you scared <laughs> little right i hate nervous drivers anyway i'm not i'm not going to relive it over on air except that i just did yeah. how many cars do you have paul um boy in our family i'm gonna say three yes well, I have four kids, so I, you know, you know. No, that, that, that's legitimate. One of them is a pickup truck, which I, my friends are just shocked that we have in this. And, and how old were they when they started driving? 17. 
All of them on yeah, the dot. Yeah. So he had more than more than two kids. So then he, they had to shuttle themselves around. That's Justin right. Fox, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Justin Fox uh, is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Great column about lots of American teens still shunning cars. Right now, my big question is, given the fact that uh, Iran can't necessarily be seen internally as standing down, I do wonder what the response is going to be. Chris Lew joining us right now, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. He has served in a variety of administrations uh, over decades. Thank you so much for being with us on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. I just want to first get your reaction. uh, If you were listening to President Trump's comments on Iran, what was your takeaway? Well, I thought it was encouraging in the sense that, you know, he was offered an off-ramp to de-escalate, and it appears that he is taking that for now. Um, it, it will be interesting to see what the Iranians think of this. I mean, he, 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 he was, in my mind, taking sort of a premature victory lap. Uh, I'm not sure that will play that well, and I think there are still remain questions what the long-term strategy is. I mean, he talked about uh, imposing additional economic sanctions, trying to get NATO involved in this, uh, trying to negotiate a new deal. But, you know, if, if we simply take a look at where we are now and where we were when he took office, it's hard to say that we are in a better situation now than where we were with the Iran nuclear deal. It's interesting, Chris, maybe take a step back here, given what we, what yeah. we heard from the president here. What do you think the administration's strategy is here uh, just over the last several days as it relates to Iran? Yeah, you know, I think it's been a little confusing, and I think that's, you know, the legitimate questions that members of Congress are asking about, you know, whether there was uh, an imminent attack that they were trying to prevent in, in killing Soleimani, uh, you know, what uh, the long-term strategy is with regard to Iran. And so I think, um, look, I think it was helpful to have the president out there speaking, but I'm not sure he necessarily answered any of those questions. I'm wondering also uh, what the broader message from this incident would be if Iran does not retaliate any further. I know that there have been a number of reports that Kim Jong-un over in North Korea is suspected to uh, be incentivized to double down on his nuclear uh, production simply because he doesn't want to be taken out by a drone either. So uh, what's what's your sense of that? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think um, the minute the president ripped up the Iran nuclear deal, it makes it certainly harder to try to um, execute any kind of uh, deal with North Korea because, you know, the president, the United States can't be trusted to live up to their arrangements. Um, I also think, you know, this was as much of anything an important um, the, the last night's attack was a way that uh, the Iranian leadership could show that they're people that they were taking this seriously. But, you know, I think we should make no mistake. I mean, this is a very dangerous regime that will figure out other ways to strike back either at Americans, allies, American businesses in ways that maybe uh, are as dangerous, but ha- are less able, we're less able to uh, put our fingers that they did it. Chris, there's some that are suggesting that uh, there is some politics involved here in what's going on uh, with Iran in terms of uh, the United States, uh, you know, taking out uh, General Soleimani as it relates to impeachment. Do you think there's yeah. a tie in there? To what extent? You know, look, I, 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 <laughs> I don't want to speculate on that. I'd like to think that this was um, this was a, a thought out strategy. Um, that being said, look, obviously we've been talking about this attack for what the last 
five or six days uh, and not talking about impeachment. Impeachment is still uh, obviously out there on the horizon and probably shorter term horizon. Uh, but I think it does raise sort of broader issues as to um, what the administration's broader policy is. And it's very muddled at the moment. And I'm sure the actions over the last five or six days haven't really clarified that in any way. What's your sense of the recent developments about impeachment, about yeah. uh, the fact that uh, Senate Democrats are trying to figure out how to pass it off to Senate without necessarily getting a sort of wash, a whitewashing of the whole affair? Yeah, you know, I, look, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, um, I, I think the Speaker, Speaker Pelosi, will probably send over the articles of impeachment, she says, soon. Um, and what we've seen over the last couple of weeks since the House passed impeachment was a number of developments. We've seen um, some important reporting out of the New York Times about other meetings that happened in the White House um, on the holding of uh, Ukrainian aid that we didn't know about in advance. Uh, we've had the release of some documents that show um, um, greater involvement by the White House in this decision. Uh, and we obviously have the big news from the other day that uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, is willing to testify. So what that shows you is that there are additional, a lot of additional documents, additional witnesses and testimony. And so even if, um, even if Democrats were not able to get an agreement up front that those documents and witnesses would be part of a Senate trial, they've certainly made a public case that we're only seeing basically the tip of the iceberg right now. Um, this, I think, will clearly be revisited, even if the Senate trial starts without an agreement on additional witnesses. Uh, there will be motions by Senate Democrats to try to ca uh, call those witnesses. And frankly, a lot of this is going to rely on whether those handful of moderate Senate Republicans um, and, and whether they're willing to break from their leadership and call some of these witnesses. So uh, we're speaking with Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, host of other uh, governmental service jobs that he has served and roles that he has served throughout his career. I am wondering, you know, I want to go back to Paul's question where he was asking Hello? about the relation between uh, the strikes over in Iran as well as, uh, you know, the impeachment trials. And does this give... President Trump much more popularity among Republicans and support among Republicans, uh, just because it seems to have been incredibly successful. You know, look, I think I think the jury's still out on this right now. Um, the um, some of the recent polling. And it shouldn't surprise you. I mean, everything in this country right now um, breaks on partisan lines, uh, shows that about 53 percent of Americans um, oppose the, the president's handling of the situation in Iran right now. Um, you know, again, I think we'll have to wait and see what the longer term developments on this are. I mean, we're only, as I said, you know, five or six days from uh, the original um, uh, killing. And I think obviously less than 24 hours away from uh, last night's events. And so uh, we're going to have to let this play out a couple more news cycles to see what happens. So, Chris, just going back to impeachment real quickly, I'm just kind of wondering what next steps are, because we're obviously in uncharted yeah. territory here. Who do you think has the leverage here uh, between the Democrats and Republicans here? Because it's, you know, Speaker Pelosi withholding the articles of impeachment is, yeah. is, is unusual, I guess, just given by the, the little yeah. bit of precedent that we do have. Well, look, I think the initial leverage right now is being held by the, the, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. I mean, obviously, he controls... Um, the, he, he controls the process. He's got the 51 votes to move forward. Uh, but I think, you know, I think the challenge will be for him to keep some of those moderate Republicans in line when Senate Democrats start asking for additional votes. And so, um, 
You know, I think this. You know, I think we've only sort of seen the, the first, um, you know, um, card being played at this point, and it'll be interesting to see how things play out. And and again, you know, whether House Democrats try in some way to call John Bolton uh, as some part of a formal hearing. I mean, he said he will testify before the Senate, but um, there's no reason, frankly, at this point, why he would not testify before the House as well. Chris Liu, thank you so much for being with us and all your commentary. Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama, among other roles. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.